Hi, this is Graham Brown and welcome to the Excel Podcast. The Excel Podcast is a platform for the bigger conversations about leadership in the 2020s. Who's leading? How are they leading? And what stories do they have to share? Through the stories of leaders, we'll address the big challenges of our times from the era of AI to the Asian century to nurturing a new generation of entrepreneurs. If you're enjoying these conversations, subscribe to the podcast at xlpodcast.org. Welcome to the XL Podcast, where we talk about leadership, which also means not just leaders and how they lead, but the leaders and how they deal with being a leader, the stress, the mental health, something we don't often talk about. So I'm so pleased that my next guest, Nick Johnson, joins us on the XL Podcast to talk about that one subject. Two words you don't hear often next to each other, executive loneliness. Surely as an executive, you should have worked it out. You should be successful. You are idolized by society and media for being at the peak of your career. And yet here you are talking about being lonely. Let's have a look at some of the data. So 91% of Singaporeans report feeling stressed. 91%. And it's not just an Asian thing. The UK government only recently three years ago, 2018, appointed the first suicide minister. And it's global, this phenomenon. The tragic data is that the biggest cause of death in Australian males between 15 and 45 is suicide. So what's wrong, especially what's wrong with males, especially what's wrong with executives? Why are we in this situation? Why do we have, for example, athletes like Naomi Osaka complaining about mental health? That's how the media see it, complaining. And yet the reality is, is that everybody feels that, you know, success isn't the only moniker of what we should strive for in life. Happiness, connection, mental well-being as well. Just because you're successful doesn't mean that you should be in touch with your own personality, your own mental state. And that is the problem that we're going to talk about today, is that by virtue of the fact that you are successful, that you are a leader, that you are an executive, often we find ourselves disconnected. We find ourselves without the avenues to talk about what really matters, and that is connecting to other people and mental health. This is a tough conversation. We're going to talk about stress, suicide, drugs, addiction, alcoholism, connection, relationships. It's everything. But it's done under the conversational cover of what is it that we need to do to really solve this problem and how do we have this conversation how do we put that conversation into the public sphere so i'm really pleased that nick joins us today and he'll talk about the book that he's written executive loneliness because it's a conversation that needs to be had and not a lot of people are talking about this so hopefully this will strike a chord with you and make you think well as well about the whole subject of executive loneliness. And also it's not just something that happens to people that are failures in life, often those that are the most successful may be experiencing this. Okay, welcome back everybody. 
Graham Brown here. I'm with Nick Johnson, who, for those that know, is very much at the heart of the Executives Global Network, based here in Singapore, but with a global reach. And for those that don't know yet, you probably know him from Aligned Connections, or you may know him from his most recent book, which we're going to talk about today, which is a conversation we all need to have. The book's called, well, the main title is Executive Loneliness, which in itself is a strange juxtaposition of two words, executives and loneliness. You would assume that executives have it all. They are the paragon of success in society. They've achieved the, the heights of their career in success, and yet here they are lonely. What's going on in the world? So first of all, Nick, welcome to the show. Really good to have you here. Thank you very much, Graham. I'm grateful that you invited me to speak on this topic that many are avoiding. Well, there's a stigma, isn't there? And there's a reason why people are avoiding it. And it's a conversation that we need to have. I feel that we need to put this into context a little bit about you. And we'll talk about your journey as well, Nick, but we'll get there first. But just to put this into context, we had a recent conversation. You've been traveling a bit recently. You're heading back to Sweden, back here to Singapore. And uh, I think what kind of impressed me about you, there's a number of things which we'll talk about, but in that time when you were traveling, and traveling's tough, especially now with all the restrictions, but you dropped casually in conversation that you managed to complete an Ironman or half Ironman during your travels. Not the easiest thing to do in any kind of normal situation, but you have a real drive and determination. I'm Ironman myself as well, but to do it whilst I'm traveling is something else. That's a different level. You have a real drive. You're up at five in the morning or is it 4.50? What time does your alarm go off in the morning? Uh, it typically around 4.10 or 4.15 a.m. And then what are you doing? Well, it, up for a, a bike ride typically or a long walk or a run. And then I uh, do my community service most mornings, 6 a.m. to support some local charities in Singapore. So at four in the morning, do you ever wake up and you not feel the love for getting up on, on your, the bike and grinding out the miles? What's that determination? What's that drive that gets you up that most people can't get out of bed on the other side of seven o'clock for? Uh, it is a commitment I do. It's a, it's a longer plan linked to my purpose in life. And uh, the, when the alarm rings at four o'clock or four ten a.m., uh, of course, no one wants to get out of the bed at that hour. It's absolutely awful. But you have put the alarm and you have committed to some people that you're going to be there and therefore you just do it. And you, it's basically an autopilot. And once you're, you're on the bike five minutes into the ride, you're, you're grateful. And when you completed the ride, then you feel even better. So that is what keeps me going. And most people are still asleep by the time you've completed that ride as well. And that's the whole purpose. <laughs> that's the well, purpose. That you, you want to avoid the traffic. About it, right? You know, one thing I've discovered, obviously talking a lot to and working with the endurance community is that anybody really who's achieved anything at exceptional level in life, often their driver is, is that they've been to the edge and they've stared over the edge and they've seen that and that's given them the energy that most people don't have. It's not just motivation. It's a real energy that comes from understanding or being close to our own mortality, close to our own limits and really at the depths maybe of our own journey. So 
that's something that you've touched in your journey and it's been something that you've experienced in the people around you as well. So that's something that I really want to learn about today, but maybe we can talk about something that came out of the book that I was reading this morning. And there's an interesting survey that you did with EGN members. And these people are senior executives. So these people are the CXOs, heads of department, people you would assume to have it all. They've got it worked out. They've done well in success and career. There's a data point here, Nick, that said that in your own internal survey, you found that 30% of senior execs are currently in or have undergone bouts of depression higher than the national average. And 80%, the interesting point, said they were reluctant to discuss. I find that amazing that executives have a higher level of depression. The point about reluctant to discuss may be related to that, but why are executives suffering more than most people? Well, that is also what drives them to deliver at a high level. It might be that they have grown up under some challenging circumstances, maybe parents who didn't really give them the recognition as a child, so they were seeking that externally. Maybe they were trying to impress friends, or maybe they were trying to do something in sports so they would get some recognition externally. And then as growing up, perhaps they were longing for that loan, for that recognition, which they didn't get as children. And then they define themselves perhaps in the work and by delivering ex extremely good results, uh, being in the press, being in the spotlight as the CEOs of big organizations, that's where they felt fulfilled. And getting this external all the time is driving them higher, but it's also make them feel more lonely. And that is at least how I uh, describe it and how it was for myself also that was driving me many times to to receive recognition do you feel that that fire came from your childhood as well do you feel that you know you have this driver which is both a blessing and a curse in your own journey yes i do feel uh, like that perhaps it was when i grew up and uh, my dad wasn't really there for me when I did sports and so on. And I had to work extremely hard just to get any recognition or a pat on the back. And uh, I didn't really feel that strong connection mm. with my parents when I was a child. And I think that could be one of the reasons. And I've re been reflecting on this a lot, Graham. And this is one of the conclusions I come to. It's amazing, isn't it? I was speaking to, on my podcast not so long ago, on this podcast, the first one I did with Tony Fernandez. And he said a very similar thing. You know, this is a billionaire who, you know, owns Formula One teams and football clubs. And he was saying that his dad never, ever gave him praise. For, I think he was saying that he was playing football once and he scored, I don't know, he scored a hat trick. And he came off and he thought, this is going to be the time that my dad is going to say, well done, son. And his dad turned around to him and said, son, you're a ball hog. And there was no praise whatsoever. And you can imagine as a kid, that becomes a real driver, doesn't it? That you want to prove yourself. And it's embedded at a very early age. It's almost in our DNA. And then when you become an executive and successful, and we'll talk about your journey, you've, you've enjoyed at various levels of success. It becomes hard to talk about that, doesn't it? It becomes hard to talk about, oh yeah, the reason I'm like this is because of what happened when I was a teenager or when I was a kid and so on. It's almost like admitting weakness. But if I read your book, Nick, you're, you're regularly using words like being scared and being anxious. I'm surprised by that. And I commend you for it as well. These are not words often mentioned by 
executives. Has that come later in life for you to kind of reconcile that and to say, actually, this is how I feel? Were you in denial for a while about that? Yes, yeah, certainly being in denial and, and being too selfish and too much uh, up myself, which I think is also very common among senior executives. So it was only when I did have my crash, when I really went deep and I, I basically was at the bottom of my health and I surrendered. That's when I did, started to talk to people and I spoke with uh, multiple coaches and therapists and so on. And through this self-discovering journey and also being a part then of some uh, mental health support groups and so on, that's when I learned all these things about myself. And those were the words that were used in my conversations with people that helped me to come out of this. And these were the words uh, that other senior executives who've been there before who also helped me to go through these used and that the, the, those are words that we typically don't use but what I learned from my journey was really to turn this into a strength by being vulnerable is a strength and it's not mm. a weakness mm. you must have found it hard at the beginning mentioning these words and being vulnerable that was there obvious pushback did you have people who said to you, look, Nick, shut up, you're successful. Why are you talking like this? Or was it subtle or was it more of your own internal dialogue? I'm just wondering where the resistance comes from. You know, is it subtle nudges that push people away from talking about vulnerability or is it people outright saying, shut up, Nick, you're high paid. You've been successful. You've got a great job. How can you talk about these things? Well, I was pretty quiet in the beginning. Um, I decided to share a little bit with my wife, who I just married when I was in my recovery. I decided then to start sharing some of my story inside a support group I joined. And this support group I joined, uh, they basically want you to commit to come for 90 days in a row and, and join at least one hour per day for 90 days. And the first one or two months, I was just listening. And around me here was 20, 30 very senior executives, most of them a few years into recovery. So they were there to give back and help others to go through it. Like myself, who was new in there. And I listened to them, how open they were, how vulnerable they were. And it was the first time I really could hear, you know, adult men, top of top of organizations sharing about their stories. And in the, their stories, I found myself and I felt perhaps for the first time in my life that this was where I belonged. I belonged around these honest conversations, which is so rare to hear. And that is where not only me and senior executives, but if you read about uh, Brad Pitt's uh, personal journey, when he crashed mm. and he went through recovery, he's sharing these words again as well. And it's so rare to be among men, especially having these honest conversations. So that's where I started to pick it up. And after then one or two months listening to these people, I started to share more and more. And then I started to practice the muscle of being honest. And for every time I shared something, which was for the first time something honest, and I spoke it out and other people listened, I walked out of that room feeling something had left my shoulders. I felt lighter. And then I wanted to come back the next day and share a little bit more. There's something particular about being a man as well in that conversation, isn't there? I mean, you mentioned these people in this group, mostly male, that their expectations are different, aren't they? I'm not saying it's easier for women, but there's something about being a boy growing up, isn't there? About how to behave and how to express emotions, which I feel is something we've all experienced, but we don't talk about, do we? I mean, like that man up attitude 
is that you, you know, you're a sports guy, you play any kind of sports. And if you admit to any kind of weakness, it's a sign of being a wimp or, you know, somehow being not part of the team or letting people down. It's very ingrained in our culture, isn't it? So it's very hard to go against that and to talk out about it. Yes, it is. But once you have it in the public, it's very hard to go back on it, right? So it, my journey then, I, I learned to practice to be more honest. For every day I was more honest. The next time I shared a little bit differently and I learned to uncover it and be more honest. And I did the same when I wrote the book because my uh, wife, who I just married in my recovery, she, I asked her to read basically my intro to the book and she read it about 50 times. And I asked her, you were there. Is this the real truth? Is this the real truth? Mm -hmm. Challenge me. And she said, no, Nick, you were more sick. You were like this. And, and I then re rewrote it again more honestly. And I keep practicing this all the time today and thinking to myself, was that exactly the truth I shared? And because we're trying to not, we're trying to just sugarcoat it and, and trying to make it sound nice when it perhaps shouldn't be. There's a picture in the book, a photo, which is pretty ugly of your foot. That's one of the images that stood out. I was reading that in the taxi. And I imagine it's probably something related to gout, that something related to your alcohol um, addiction. Could I say that? You, you went through a situation. I mean, let's put it out there. You know, against the backdrop of being a scholarship student, you graduated top of the class, one of the top performing sales managers in your organization living an expat life, very comfortable. And yet at the same time, you were reliant on alcohol, uh, prescription drugs, and there's you with this picture or just your foot actually. <laughs> and it's there for everything, everybody to see. It's not glamorized. It's not in any way, you know, glitterized. Here it is, your foot there. But what's quite sad about it is what, when I was reading it is that what sort of the, the process that followed afterwards, which, you know, it really got me is first of all, you, you, you came to this kind of acceptance that you might actually die. And that to me, you, you were a young lad, you were 42, I think at the time, right? I believe. And you were, you, you mentioned this fact that the average age of males death in your family was 44. So it's almost like, okay, this is part of the story of, the Johnsons, right? You know, this is what happens next. You're on your way out. So you came almost at age 42 to accept that you may actually die. And what I found most sort of shocking about it was you actually mentioned the word, get your affairs in order, which is what a doctor would say to somebody with terminally ill cancer. And that is sort of, we've done everything. You've got six to 12 months and that's it. Now, now just kind of work out and say your goodbyes. That must have been really tough. Like you're a young guy, you've got this Iron Man spirit. And then at, in your early 40s, to accept that, how on earth can you get into that situation? Oh, before we talk about how you got into that, but what was going through your head then, Nick? Well, I, I was looking at my foot and my body. And I mean, you can imagine if that's what I'm looking on the outside, you can imagine how I felt on the inside. And uh, I mean, my heart was rushing and uh, my blood pressure was through the roof. And it was just no way I could do anything without uh, some, some uh, prescribed drugs from a doctor or by alcohol. I needed that to calm my nerves. My nerve system was breaking down on me. It was nothing I was do. I was completely incapable at this time to go on to do anything 
without uh, any drugs or alcohol. So that was what's going on in my mind. And I, I didn't know how to break the pattern. I tried and I tried to stop. I tried to stop cold turkey. I tried to taper of it. It was just not possible. And that is the hopelessness you find yourself in then when you just cannot. You you don't want to drink. You don't want to drug, but you have no choice. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's 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 why. And by the way, the foot, uh, I also thought it was gout. And the doctors did all kinds of tests and blood tests. And they couldn't find anything like that. So in the end, it was a psychologist to diagnose it. That's a psychosomatic illness, which basically comes mainly from uh, a mental breakdown internally that can show up like the way it did. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it must have been a real pit of despair that you were in at the time. And even, you know, you, you talked about going cold turkey, for example, that, you know, I've heard people talk about this. It's like I read Russell Brand's recovery as an interesting guide about how, you know, not just drugs or alcohol but behaviors in itself and also mental health that a lot of this is we have to look at it as a symptom it's symptomatic of an underlying mindset so even if you try and go cold turkey you don't change the underlying mindset which is what is driving this This is what you know he talks about and i just i found this quote because i know you've talked about very similar themes in your book he said that the reason why we we crave alcohol or substances he says because we crave connection you know so much of the time we are not alive we're neutralized you know who are you when you're listening to the radio in traffic you are not you you are on standby he said that the instinct that drives compulsion is universal it's an attempt to solve the problem of disconnection you know that we are born to connect with other people and yet when we get disconnected we seek out other ways of giving us that feeling where were you in your mind state when the foot incident took place when we thought about you know you your identity connection with other people what was going on in your life then well at first thought i wasn't even connected to myself uh, that's why i felt very lonely with myself and uh, if i was around people even if i was among good friends i certainly felt lonely uh, but if i had uh, enough to drink i could feel okay that sort of numbed me and made me feel relaxed and that's why you know you kept coming back to that and that's at least the last sort of six months to 12 months before i managed to 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 then sober up that's that was the the feeling i had so that complete loneliness and and uselessness and i can remember having some company events around that time and I just couldn't show up. I had to pay someone to be there in my place. I, I just could work behind a computer. And imagine if this was a time when, like now, when people have the perfect excuse to work mm. from home and hide. There's so many people hiding. And I know right today, there's so many people hiding and the companies won't find out because people are just working from home. What would it have been like if you were doing that now? If you were, if you were to fast forward and say, in the middle of a pandemic when you're working from home, would it have been a different outcome? Yeah, I don't think I would have survived through it. It would have been much worse because during, at least at that time, I had to force myself to get well because I was expected to show up eventually. Now you don't have to show up. That's interesting, isn't it? There's probably a lot of people who are off the radar. Yes, and I know it because I'm I'm a volunteer and fundraiser for two organizations who are working with this. So yeah, it's it's an extremely serious situation at the moment. Well, there's something you talk about in your book, Nick. You you mentioned smiling depression. 
which I find fascinating because I think that sums it up quite well, doesn't it? That on the outside, he looks okay. But on the inside, it's very different. When you were in that situation, were you like a, the good time guy? Were you always kind of, you know, were you out there drinking, socializing, having fun, but inside you were kind of dying inside? What was it actually like for you? Yes, certainly like that. People say, and some of my drinking friends, the not people who were having alcohol problems, but my drinking buddies would say that I was a much more fun guy when I was drinking, you know, uh, and they think, think I'm rather boring now. So that's, uh, yes, yeah, certainly I, I, and it was no one who expected, hmm. at least what I know today that I had any problems. Yeah. Well, you talk about a story in the book as well, somebody you knew quite well, Simon Greaves. And he died of suicide in 2019, which was quite a pivotal point in your journey as well. And you described how he, on the surface, lived the dream. His Facebook page was full of happy photos. He was in love. He'd just come back from Everest Base Camp. To all intents and purposes, it's very Instagram friendly. It's very much, wow, he's living the life that I want to live. Everybody wants to live. But inside, it was very different. Can you tell us the story of Simon and really what was going on there? Yeah, indeed. He, he went to Mount Everest and I followed him. He created a, a Facebook group where we can follow his videos and everything. And even leading up to his journey there, how he exercised, it was really his dream in his life. And uh, it really seemed like he had a, the best year of his life. Everything was going well for him. And also, yeah, indeed, he was in love. He had a girlfriend. He had everything to live for. And um, he was suddenly just gone and no one could understand it. I spoke with his friends. I spoke with his family and they didn't know what, so what was the most shocking here that we, we just had no idea that he was going this way. Uh, so yeah, there's not much more to say about it, but what I can say is that uh, if someone is suffering from loneliness and isolating themselves, uh, there's a fine line between being where I was and, and, and being sick like that to perhaps taking the extra step, especially for men. Mm. That is the sad part of this. What was that line for you? What prevented you going over? Because you could have easily done that, couldn't you? Especially if you looked at the, the history of your family where people were lucky to make it beyond 45. You probably thought your numbers were up. What stopped you? I the main reason stopped me was that I, I felt that I didn't need to. I was going to go anyway. I was just so sick and so, so weak and, and feeling so, but I just didn't think I would survive. Yeah, you thought it was going to take its natural course. Yes, exactly. So that, therefore, I didn't even have to think about it. I just thought it was going to happen. You see, when and you I talk now, accepted it. And, mm. and like when I know you, and, you know, obviously, the more I've got to know you through our conversations, the more I've got to know your story is that you, when I first know you and then you, in terms of your backstory, there's a very different backstory from what people see. They see the Iron Man, the age group world athlete, you know, I don't know where you are in the rankings, but you're not sort of in the bottom half. You're right up there in terms of age group triathletes and you know, your work, you're out there in the public eye, and I see all of that. And you would assume that, you know, that's somebody who hasn't lived this kind of life, who hasn't been through this journey. And yet when you learn about that, you think, wow, actually that comes from a real position of personal pain 
and loss and a, a journey of adversity as well, as well as, you know, losing people around you. You never, you never see that when you meet people. And I wonder as well, when you, you meet people in the executive space, that point about, like Simon's family said, he just seemed fine. It amazes me and it makes me worry as well, because, you know, all those people around us, you know, they just seem to be okay. You never knew. What can we do about that? That That's sort of, you know, on a personal level, we touch a lot of people on a daily basis and people say things. And maybe you think, oh, he's okay. You think somebody else is going to check up on them, right? You think somebody else is asking if they're okay. I think that's always the situation, isn't it? You always think that that person has got somebody that's kind of checking in on them. And it's not my job to do that. What should we be doing with the people around us? Should we pay, be paying more attention to them? What should we do? I think uh, it seems to be a trend these days to ask, how are you? But that's, uh, <laughs> that is, uh, it just makes me laugh because no one is going to tell you unless you're vulnerable with them first. And uh, let me share with you a, a brief story. And it's from the book. It's a, a Singaporean woman in the banking industry, a senior executive. And uh, it went as far as that she was even rehearsing her own suicide twice. Uh, she had decided for herself. She even knew uh, the location. She knew the time of the day and she went there to rehearse it. She just had not decided on the date yet. Uh, by some miracle, though, she was talking to a therapist and she was telling her therapist about it. And luckily she did because the therapist involved the husband and they had a conversation and they managed to solve this situation, which had been very bad. It had built up over, over several years. It's gone from bad to worse until she actually went as far to rehearse her suicide. Once she had put it on the table and they had discussed it, her recovery was as instant as mine. And she had shared her story in my book. And now during COVID, she also uh, bought a copy of the book and gave to all her colleagues in the bank and including her boss. And she let mm. them all read the book. And afterwards, she said, by the way, the story you read about the woman in there, that's me. Wow. And, you know, they, they were all shocked to hear it. And then, and then they came one after one into her office and sharing how they were suffering or what had happened to them. And they shared the inner secrets, stories that she never heard about them. And she worked with some of them for 10, 15 years. So my point of the story here is, Graham, everyone around us have their own stories, but we don't know them because mm. they don't know ours. So you need to be the one to open up and she being vulnerable with them first. And then if you are vulnerable with someone, they will share back with you. They will say, oh, yeah, that happened to me. Or that's how I had my wife. Or that's my brother. That's how we are as humans. Mm. Yeah, we tend to feel that when we look at other people on the outside, don't we? And we see the external trappings of success, the title, the big office, the, you know, the, the fat salary, the expat package. And yet, what we really don't understand is that generally I think most people are undergoing either problems or a crisis of some sort. Everybody's just kind of hanging on, aren't they? Everybody's just kind of getting through. Everybody's going through something. And yet we spend so much time in this life trying to put on this face of normality for various reasons. And yet when somebody actually says, look, we're all experiencing this, to some degree. That's a relief, isn't it? It's like, like you mentioned that sort of lifting of the weight from your shoulders. Wow. I'm not the only one. We've seen like a real shift, haven't we, in the public debate about this. And obviously you are a part of that. 
publishing your book and being out there on podcasts and on news talking about this. We've seen this, for example, only very recently, Naomi Osaka talking about mental health, you know, the tennis champion, and also Emma Raducanu um, not appearing or not appearing in some competitions because she's talking about mental health. These are athletes. If you go back a few years, Robin Williams um, died of suicide and everybody was shocked that a funny man could be in that zone, that depth of despair. But back then we didn't talk about it. We didn't talk about mental health and now things have changed, haven't they? Do you think this trend will continue in the right positive way? What do we need to do in the public sphere to talk about this? Because it seems now people are accepting that successful people are having their own problems, are struggling, are lonely, and that is okay. Because they're successful doesn't mean they've got all the answers. Do you think this is the right way to talk about it? Or do you think that the media has kind of hijacked the conversation a little bit? No, I believe it's going in the right way. There's no bad conversations around it. The fact that we just talk about it is already a good starting point. And I mean, we come a long way. And if we're looking at Singapore, who's made such great progress the last three years, for example, only in 2020 was a suicide attempt decriminalized in Singapore. So until then, we couldn't even speak about it. And since then, we have organizations like the Samaritans, the SOS, where I'm a volunteer and fundraiser, who have established themselves, who are there 24 hours a day to take phone calls for someone who has suicidal thoughts or who, uh, who knows about a family member who needs help. So that help wasn't available before. Now it's there. And that's why it, it's the right time to speak about this. Hmm. Do you feel that the, you know, it is an accepted subject to speak about now? Do you still find resistance when you speak about this? I receive some resistance. Uh, some people may say that it's not for me. Most likely it's the, the, it is for those people, uh, but perhaps they feel overwhelmed. Maybe they're mm. not ready to have the conversation yet. And we shouldn't push the agenda forward. Let's have the conversations. They can switch off if, if they want, don't want to listen. They can join later on. But there are enough people who want to have these conversations and i was speaking last night uh, to a regional conference to coaches uh, who are having coaches who they're talking with obviously and, and and about loneliness and so on and i was coaching them on coaching strategies how to help the coaches with their loneliness and what questions to ask and, and showing care and so on and so in all these kind of different uh, uh, subsections of uh, organizations and groups we should have these conversations and every company every department need to have this conversation on the table we need to be there and it needs to be driven and that's why I, my book is about executive loneliness it needs to be coming from the top this mm. cannot come from the bottom of the organization you will not have a, a new fresh graduate coming into a bank and telling everyone how they are suffering it needs to be from the top person and that is how uh, what i'm trying to help with with many organizations to help them with these conversations mm -hmm. yeah it's a big part of general well-being within the organization as well, isn't it? If we get the green light from the top, we allow people to talk about these things and feel safe in talking about these subjects, then that will benefit everybody in the long run. And that's the important thing. It's not a sign of weakness. It's not a sign of complaining, which I feel people have to get over. Is that actually, it's a sign that we're all actually connected through 
these struggles. It's a human story, isn't it? Very much. You know, and that's what makes us human is this struggle. And we all share that journey. And that makes us feel connected to one another as well. And the fact that we don't share and don't talk about this disconnects us in a way, which further leads to other problems as we've seen, right? I think it's, um, it's an amazing journey that you're on, Nick, and a brave one as well, that you've very much propelled yourself along this journey. And it's a mission that's kind of taking you, it's dragged you in a way. But only by experiencing your own dark story in the backstory that you are qualified to talk about this and understand what other people have been through as well. When you're there in the morning at 4.15 on the bike, how much of these thoughts are going through your head? Well, it's mainly the positive stories and, and the contribution that we can do and that I do with uh, many of my associates and friends who are also volunteers and helping these many people are suffering now to have these conversations. So uh, I'm extremely grateful for both when I'm coming into these rooms now and I can see people suffering the way I was suffering three and a half years ago. That still scared the hell out of me to see how they are suffering because I can remember and that fear will be with me for life that I don't want to be back where I was. But it's also great to see the people then who are, you know, two weeks, three weeks into recovery and so on. Uh, that are coming back to life and to see also that they, you know, they putting the, the financials together again, the family, the wife is coming back to them. They can move back into the apartment after they perhaps have had uh, big clashes and things. And especially now, again, in the last one and a half year where children have been homeschooling and uh, perhaps both the husband and wife working home, everyone sitting in a small apartment, five, five people trying to do work on a kitchen table. You know, it is tense out there or it has been tense out there. And that is what we're dealing with now. And uh, it, it's still tense, especially as we touched upon for us expats, perhaps where many have not been able to attend to their own parents' funeral, perhaps they miss that and they have that on their shoulders, trying to hold things together here uh, when perhaps the company is in a crisis mode. There's just so, mo so much external pressure and to then trying to keep that smiling depression together mm. uh, until it goes to bursting point. Yeah, I'm so glad we talked about this, Nick talking about executive loneliness, we could have talked about a number of subjects. I know in the previous conversations, we went over a few of the subject areas. We could have talked about networking. We could have talked about leadership, which is obviously a popular subject in the executive sphere as well. But, you know, I feel that really at the, the heart of the matter is this, and this is what you are all about. And almost in a sense that you, this is your story. And, you know, there's nothing more authentic than that, that you've lived it and you're here to share it. And this is what you get up at four o'clock in the morning to do, you know, to talk about this, to connect with people and to hear their stories and help them on that road to recovery as well. And, you know, help people deal with this because then everything else on top of that is academic, you know, the being an executive management leadership, digital transformation, all of this, it becomes secondary to the fact that, it, you know, if we're not happy, then, you know, what's going wrong? What are we doing wrong here? So I'm really glad that we stayed focused on this subject area because I really feel passionate about this as, and obviously not as much as you do. And this is really your mission in life, it seems, to go out there and talk about this 
then it's something that you you've got this energy for so i'm so glad that you're out there and doing it and really not shying from it you know daring to be vulnerable so for those people that have listened today i'm sure you know there's the book egn but ultimately finding out more about you i feel people would want to connect with you want to learn about you and where is the best place to go and start that journey and connect with you uh, LinkedIn is a pretty good place. They can look me up there. Nick Johnson, that's N-I-C-K, uh, Johnson, J-O-N-S-S-O-N. And that's one place. But otherwise, if you Google executive loneliness, I think uh, everything you find there on the first page is uh, my materials to so look it up. Nick Johnson, everybody, thank you so much for coming on XL Podcast today and sharing your story. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to the XL Podcast with me, Graham Brown. To subscribe and discover more conversations, go to www.xlpodcast.org.